In this episode, I speak with two of Australia's most eminent agricultural research scientists about a really important workshop that's just been held. The episode's in two parts. I hope you'll enjoy hearing from Dr. Colin Chartres and Dr. Dan Walker and I. Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On, a podcast that takes its cue from big picture, healthy and sustainable food system agendas and digs in to explore their implications and how they are landing here in Australia. I'm Anthea Fawcett, founder of Foodswell, sustainability advocate and a farmer's daughter from New South Wales. Join me on a weekly journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Agriculture is both driving climate change and strongly impacted by it. The impact of Australia's worst summer of bushfires, a changing political approach globally and more calls for net zero emissions by 2050 have increased the focus on climate action. It's a really hot topic for Australian farmers and researchers. Joining me to talk about some of the ways that Australian researchers and farmers can and are taking action is Dr. Colin Chartres. Colin is the CEO of the Crawford Fund, an honorary professor in the Crawford School of Public Policy at ANU and an eminent scientist with deep experience in water, soil and rural science research, policy and agricultural development in Australia and internationally. Welcome, Colin. Thank you very much for taking time to speak with me today. Thank you, Anthea. It's a real privilege to to speak with you from the Crawford Fund. Exactly what farmers can and are doing to mitigate greenhouse gas emissions is really just such a huge topic. But building the conversations to help promote farmer-led action as well as the research that is required to build meaningful solutions, is all key to the picture. Colin, you and your colleagues at the Crawford Fund and at the Australian Centre for International Agricultural Research, ACIA, are leading the way to help do just that. You're holding a really important workshop in March that's all about farmer-led, science-based greenhouse gas mitigation strategies for Australia and abroad. To help lead us in, can you perhaps tell us about what the Crawford Fund's purpose is and what its key objectives are? Uh, yeah, we are a not non-for-profit uh, NGO. Uh, we focus uh, in particular on uh, providing training uh, and public awareness uh, around uh, topics of international agriculture development, particularly in the research uh, and development sector. Mm-hmm. We also um, we do run... Uh, national conference uh, at Parliament House and also some of the workshops like the one that you just mentioned. And you also do a lot for young Australians in their careers, studies and volunteering for food and nutrition security, I understand. Yeah, we have um, approximately 500 uh, plus or maybe 700 members now of the what's called the Researchers in Agriculture for International Development, the RAID network. Uh, they're really sort of... Uh, Generate the next generation of uh, researchers and, y- and young farmers, uh, very active, and uh, we try and link them into some of our mainstream projects, uh, as well as um, helping them forge links with uh, um, people overseas working in agriculture, which, of course, is difficult at the moment because of uh, COVID and travel restrictions. That's so important. 
And and how do you work with ACR or complement what they do? Well, ACR are one of our major funders, uh, but um, as well as the funding, we really try and build on what ACR are doing in their projects. Uh, we, we provide training in areas that uh, ACR sometimes doesn't directly touch on. For example, uh, a few years ago, we jointly recognised with ACR the fact that um, a lot of uh, people who are emerging in their scientific careers overseas haven't had the training in research leadership and management that's that they need that will help them so we put on an annual um, training course in that area uh, usually again overseas um, and similarly we've been running that course in a modified format for people in the raid network uh, uh, we also um, work with uh, ACR to extend work from some of their, pro- their projects they've funded for example work on fisheries and uh, fish fish passageways in the Mekong we have sort of moved followed them and built uh, on extension workshops in that kind of area so it's a very mutually complementary sort of relationship in that that sense and, and really long-term strategic investment for the benefit of Australia's connections with the region, but also for developing countries in the region? Well, I think, you know, we look at this, uh, we try and look at it from several ways. One is uh, the, there are direct benefits to uh, farmers and agricultural systems overseas through the increased knowledge uh, and help we can give them. Secondly, there clearly are some uh, soft power, soft power, uh, soft diplomacy type of benefits that flow onto Australia from having good relationships built up scientist to scientist. Thirdly, um, by building networks across various areas, for example, quarantine and biosecurity, uh, we get forewarning of uh, diseases and pests that may hit Australia. Sometimes we can do something about it. Sometimes with things like fall armyworm, we, we've probably missed the boat. Uh, and also there's another another aspect of aid that um, that our expenditure in this area, not so much the Crawford Fund, but ACR in particular, uh, they fund the international system called the CGIAR, which uh, is a network of 14 or 15 international research centres uh, who do everything from plant breeding to uh, water management in agriculture and policy development. And from there, we ha- Australia has gained phenomenal benefit in terms of new varieties which have been developed uh, for wheat and maize and other crops, which has then been reintroduced at no real cost to Australia uh, to benefit our farmers. So it's um, there's a lot of win-win situations here, both in the, the direct agricultural side, the, the assistance to the helping farmers in this country, helping farmers overseas, and in the soft dipl- diplomacy type of area. Okay, so turning now to the workshop that the Crawford Fund and ACIA are holding in March, can you tell us about what it aims to do? who you hope will attend. I understand it's already very heavily subscribed and perhaps who will benefit from its findings going forward. Certainly. I mean, it really stemmed from discussions that um, arose a couple of years ago with our chairman, John Anderson, the ex-Deputy Prime Minister, who's um, very passionate about the role that Australia uh, can, Australian farmers can play in terms of uh, sequestering soil carbon. Uh, and we were sort of stimulated by a presentation from uh, Professor Ross Garno uh, again about 18 months ago in, in this area. And uh, an opportunity arose when uh, Australia, through ACR, is taking on the chairmanship of the uh, Council of 
what's called the Global Research Alliance for Greenhouse Gas Mitigation, or Greenhouse Gases in Agriculture is the correct title. So um, ACR asked us to set this workshop up, which really looked at the, the way in which farmers are already contributing to uh, solutions to uh, mitigate uh, gas em- uh, greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture. It's very, very topical. As, as you know, um, most people are pushing hard for a net zero uh, carbon target by 2050. And a number of farmers and a number of scientists believe that uh, although it won't be easy and it's not straightforward, agriculture can contribute in a very significant way to meeting this uh, particular target. We did some calculations um, a while back which looked at this and um, the numbers are mind-boggling and very difficult so I won't quote them specifically but essentially um, carbon sequestration by agriculture and that is absorbing carbon in in roots in in vegetation and in the soil uh, could actually equal or even double the uh, agricultural production of greenhouse gases if we get this right. So, for example, um, agriculture uh, agriculture could sequester between 55 and 164 megatons of carbon per year when its current emissions are about 72. So it's certainly possible, but there are a lot of questions around that, and uh, that's one of the things we want to bring up in the um, in the workshop in March. Fantastic. And just quickly, obviously, there's a, a great lineup of very impressive speakers, but can you, would you like to just flag some of the key people who, you know, from farming research, other groups who will be speaking at the workshop? Well, I guess if I can be controversial, you know, there are two, there are two camps here. There are <laughs> the farmers who are not in our workshop, and we're all very positive, but there are the farmers who think something can be done and are looking at uh, the ways that agriculture has shown great adaptability in Australia. Uh, and then there are some, um, some other sort of camps who, who don't think that's, um, that's possible and uh, want to see the status quo. We're very much on the positive and want to look at what can be done. So we've got um, Fiona Simpson, who's uh, chair of the uh, ACR Commission, but also importantly, President of the National Farmers Federation, uh, giving us a broad introduction. And then we've got um, three key farmers who are both advocating for uh, better management of carbon in agriculture or greenhouse gases in agriculture through to people who are actual practitioners. And they are uh, Lucinda Corrigan, who comes from the Renally Pastoral Company in Holbrook, New South Wales. Mark Wooten, who's the owner of Jigsaw Farms, uh, which is down in uh, the Horsham area of Victoria. He's looking at uh, how forestry and carbon and indigenous plantings can uh, be linked in with higher productivity grazing. Uh, Lucinda's really working more on uh, cattle, uh, greenhouse gas emissions in a cattle producing uh, farm. And then Terry McCosker from Queensland, who's uh, really sort of working with a large groups of farmers looking at uh, strategies and incentives for carbon sequestration in both cropping and pastoral uh, systems. So, you know, there are three people already at the forefront of doing this, and we want to learn from their experience uh, in the in the field, both of what succeeded and what, what the problems are. And, the, and they'll get to speak with researchers who are helping develop those methodologies to document and value capture the value of it all, which is so important. Well, I, I think I think they probably are already, you know, they're very much in tune with the science. 
Uh, you know, often in agriculture, sometimes the researcher researchers build off practitioners, uh, and as well as vice versa. So um, it's it's a, a symbiotic relationship, I think. Yeah. So further to that, I was going to ask you to ha- to perhaps flag one or two of the practical success stories of technologies or research or on farm initiatives in Australia to reduce greenhouse gases that will be discussed, but you just have. But but what are some of the ones that most excite you or just, you know, what's one that really excites you personally, given your interests? Well, I think the thing which, um, rather than going to anything specific, which we can talk about more after the uh, conference, I mean, there are, you know, there are some very exciting innovations coming up. One is the way in which um, uh, adaptation of the uh, the rumen of uh uh, cattle and uh, other animals uh, with things like seaweed can be, be made so that they're producing far far less m- methane. I think there's some great potential there. I think also in terms of um, the sequestration of carbon, what, what people don't realise is that because we're dealing with vast areas of soils and, and land, we only need to sort of change the, the carbon storage in the soil in a in a small way for example if we could increase the amount of carbon by about 0.4 percent and that, that, that's quite a lot because often australian soils only have um one or one one and a half percent carbon but when you multiply that in small increase out over vast areas you can really sort of uh build up the amount of carbon sequestered in the land the landscape in, in some, I think that the other thing which is interesting is that most of the literature suggests that it's going to be much harder in cultivated soils because these are turned over, um, even with minimum tillage, uh, and uh, material is taken off them in quite large amounts. So it's going to be quite difficult in many of those soils. It's easier in pastures in terms of improving the soil carbon levels by good pasture measurement and good grazing practice. Uh, but again, there are other ways that we haven't even really delved into as yet. Uh, you know, in cultivated farms, maybe setting aside small areas for carbon reserves could be a possibility. I think the one that hasn't really even been discussed in detail yet is um, given the fact that farmers have large amounts of area, they can easily set up small solar farms. And if we had the right um, incentives and the right technologies that are developed, we could turn most farm machinery over to electric machinery driven from renewable energy. And that, again, would eat into the very, very large amounts of diesel that are used by um, agriculture in Australia and make the whole system much more sustainable. Uh, so uh, I think those, you know, those, those are two of the areas. There are a lot of difficulties, as I've mentioned, uh, but I think one of the things we're hoping to hear from some of these farmers is how they've overcome the difficulties and secondly from the scientists what the opportunities are uh, in terms of both um, building carbon mi- minimizing its um, emission but also in terms of um, measurement and how we actually can really grasp that in, in an economic way i mean if i understand that um, if we can get the measurement of, car- of, of changes in carbon down to a few dollars per hectare the whole thing may become quite economic and the returns can be quite good quite large because there are people willing to pay for um carbon credits uh, i was told recently of a farm in queensland which has just received uh five hundred thousand dollars of credits from microsoft uh which is a significant amount of money 
Well, and thank you for that. That's that's actually really inspiring. Just an increase of 0.4% could in broad acre and elsewhere could just make such a huge difference. I didn't know that. That's quite exciting. Um, Colin, I was, over your career, you've worked extensively around soils with CSIRO and other organisations such on things like soil acidity, structure and salinity issues and their impacts on agriculture. I was wondering what you currently see as the highest order soil challenges for Australian agriculture and has the picture changed much since your days at CSIRO? I suppose I'm particularly wondering how you see climate change impacting now on soil health and healthy landscapes. Complex question (laughs) to answer quickly. No, no, it's fine. Um, look, I think, uh, I mean, my career is often has been built around uh, looking at uh, various issues associated with soil degradation. Uh, we had major issues with salinity, which, as the climate has dried slightly, have probably become a little bit less, ironically. Uh, I've worked on soil acidification, which uh, uh, is still an issue, but we know how to, to manage that. Um, it can be an expensive thing to manage. I think uh, probably one of the critical issues for Australian agriculture is going to be water availability, as it is elsewhere in the world. We know of the issues in the Murray-Darling Basin. Uh, so sustainably intensifying agriculture to make the, the most of every drop of water is going to be vital because there is going to be less in the system. That's a very, very important issue for irrigation farmers in terms of uh, the efficiency of their systems and making sure there is water left for the environment, um, as well as water taken out initially for uh, for towns and um, other industries. But I think this is where it comes back to uh, there is a potentially a win-win with uh, carbon sequestration because we know that uh, as we build up small percentages of carbon in the soil, you know, if we go from one to one point two percent or something like that, uh, <clears throat> that small increase in carbon does a number of critical things. It it increases um, the soil's ability to form good aggregates. Uh, That allows water to be absorbed. Uh, The soils don't crust as badly. It allows the water to be absorbed. The water is stored. It can be stored deeper if uh, we get the carbon deeper in the profile. And also it has a phenomenal impact on the the microbes in the soil. So we can build up... um, what are described as uh, healthier soils uh, with more flourishing microbial communities, uh, which are really, um, really critical in terms of uh, increasing uh, both the chemical and the physical fertility of soil. So more water in the soil, more nutrients being turned over, better crops uh, and more, more productivity and more efficiency. So, you know, that, that's, there's a win-win there with carbon and uh, soil health immediately. Mm, it's sort of it's soil biodiversity in the soil, isn't it? After the drought and so much media coverage of the you know huge dust storms and this sort of sense of encroaching deserts, and um, uh, there's the drought resilience strategy and fund that the Commonwealth set up. Would you like to comment on drought and just how getting more carbon into the soil means more, perhaps more moisture in the soil that can help turn back dust storms and other things like that? A lot of it's. Um you know, it's, it's a combination of climate uh, or climate drying, climate change, climate variability, and also management practices. I mean, most, not all, but many of the big dust storms uh, we have seen in the past have been associated with um, with drought and then 
also with areas where there's a large amount of fallowing of uh, soil so that uh, the, the, the wind just whips up the surface soil and blows away a lot of the, uh, the surface layers. So the, clearly there is a, a need to sort of put into practice a lot of the learnings that uh, we've made over the last few or last 50 years or so in terms of wind erosion, and that is getting cover on the surface, not ploughing and not, not removing residues, uh, not having uh, bare fallow soils. And in some cases, you know, there are opportunities for wind breaks uh, in the sort of slightly moister areas, which do have a big, a big impact. Uh, but again, it's really making sure that farmers understand the importance of surface cover. I think in terms of uh, drought, it's in- inevitable with climate change, we're going to have more frequency of the kind of cycles we've seen this century i.e. the uh, millennium drought and then followed by the the recent drought and that means these these techniques of management are going to be even more more critical so that if we do build up good organic matter levels in the years like this year when there has been plenty of rain over much of the agricultural area of eastern and south southern australia maybe not in the, the southwest we can make sure that the, the soils are stable and they don't are not prone to wind erosion uh, through good 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 management practices. But that's that's always going to be an issue for us here in Australia, and and that also is you know we have adapted to some of these issues. Uh, we have minimised erosion significantly, both water and wind erosion, um, uh, particularly you know since rabbits were controlled in the 1930s. And some are, and farmers are very adaptable. They've done a great job in many of these cases. And again, that's one of the, if you like, the selling points that we're using to say to people overseas in similar environments. You know, we have learned to adapt in some ways. Some of these techniques might might work in your area. It's not. Uh, we don't want to say that you take them lock, stock, and barrel because they need to be adapted. Uh, there may be social, cultural, educational differences, but providing at least the background information about what did work and then through projects of ACR and others looking to see if they may work and can be adapted locally elsewhere in other countries. Colin, what you've just spoken about there, you know, strategies for on-farm management, it also perhaps links links in with landscape-wide planning, doesn't it, and farmers in a region uh, connecting and sharing mutually supportive activities that uh, good for landscape-wide planning's NRM and catchment management, perhaps. Absolutely, I, I'm. Um, I've always been a great supporter of uh, land care movement, the land care movement, uh, bush care, and um, other movements of that nature. I mean, some of my, many of these were initiated by government, uh, but land care now has its international arm, which is using some of the the social and uh, organisational skills we learned here, along with some of the technical understanding to to be uh, used in other countries so i i think that we're not going we're not going to manage these issues in front of us through uh, individual action alone there has to be um, action which is coordinated across catchments uh, across river basins uh, across communities because not everything's going to be equally applicable in different uh, landscapes and different soils so it really is a kind of uh, an approach which looks at the, the differences in the landscape, the similarities, and then brings in the appropriate technologies. And, and the, 
in my view, there does need to be some fairly strong government support and incentives provided to to uh, to help with this. You know, we, we could do it another way, but if we did it another way, it would be the cost of food would be as astronomical because we'd be building all these externalities into the the cost of food, and that just wouldn't work globally. Globally, in an economic, it's a it's a public good and a natural capital good. Yeah. Yeah. Enabling, enabling the networks to happen and collaborate together. Well, it, it always stems back to things like the uh, the commons, uh, you know, where the, no one's responsible and the, the resource becomes degraded. And, and I don't think any of us want that. Um, I think we do want uh, landscapes which are both uh, stable produ- and productive and supporting people rather than vast areas of um uninhabited and uninhabited landscape which then will have other problems of management with feral animals and all sorts of things thank you just thinking about nutrition security and the quality of food soils are obviously the ground that make our food possible and climate change is impacting on the nutrient profile of some important staple crops is there perhaps a particular current example of australian soil research or related research that Australia is now sharing with developing countries to specifically help address nutrition security in staples that you might know of or like to share? Look, I, I think um, I can't pinpoint one thing there. I think Australian soil science is really focused on a, a lot of national challenges, which you know started with uh, the fact that our soils are very, very low in phosphorus and also we're lacking a lot of trace elements. And the CSIRO back in the 50s and early 60s really sort of helped us overcome those issues. I, I think where international sort of soil science and, and, and crop science has moved in recent years, and Australia's played a big role in this, um, has been through uh, looking at the gap in production between uh, the potential biological production, which depends on the the amount of sunlight, the amount of water coming into the system and so on, and actual production. And uh, I think Australian farmers have done a great job there. Many farmers have got up to, uh, you know, 70 80% of potential production. Uh, There's still room for a little bit of improvement. Overseas, uh, there's a lot of countries where that gap is still probably 40 or 50%. And... um, uh, it's taking some of the overall management techniques for soils, for management of weeds, for management of water, and putting them into an agricultural system where we're now seeing some of these these gains. So really significant uh, information sharing to help uh, productivity gains. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, Colin, thank you. Uh, do you have any other comments or quick thoughts you'd like to make or offer? No, look, I think uh, I think we've covered pretty well everything uh, I just want to go back to that 0.4% uh, carbon increase. Uh, it's not 0.4% of the total amount there. It's a, it's an actual figure of an increase of about 0.4 of a percent. So, uh, and that's quite a challenge. So, you know, if you've got 1, 1%, you've got to go to about 1.4% to, to make that difference. Thank you, Colin. Thank you so much. It's been a, It's been a real pleasure to speak with you about the upcoming workshop and the work that you, the Crawford Fund and ACIA are doing to build the conversations and the action for more farmer-led science-based greenhouse gas mitigation solutions. So good luck with the workshop. And I really look forward to speaking with Dr. Walker from ACIA after the workshop to learn more and to help share the really valuable outcomes from it. Thank you very much, Anthony, and we look forward to talking again. That's fantastic. Thanks very much, Colin. 
Welcome, Dan, and hello. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for the opportunity. It's such a pleasure to be able to speak with Dr. Dan Walker, to hear about and to share insights from and highlights from the really important workshop that ACIA and the Crawford Fund held this week, What Farmers Can Do, Farmer-Led Science-Based Greenhouse Gas Mitigation, Strategies for Australia and Abroad. And that workshop was all about innovative practices that are making a difference and setting future directions in research and for farmers. Dr. Daniel Walker is the Chief Scientist of the Australian Centre for International Agricultural Research, ACIA, where, among many things, he oversees the strategic science focus of ACIA's research portfolio and provides leadership for research program managers across nine research areas, along with oversight of ACIA's relationship with the Australian Innovation System. Prior to joining ACIA in 2017, Dan spent 23 years at CSIRO, where he was Research Director for Agriculture and Global Change with CSIRO's Agriculture and Food, and prior to that, he was Chief of CSIRO Ecosystem Services. So Dan is eminently qualified to understand the challenges here in Australia and how Australian innovation may be able to contribute to agriculture and countries in our region. And Dan, you did such an excellent job in summing up the workshop discussions on the day during this this week. Thanks, Sophia. Dan, before we discuss the workshop highlights, can you tell us about the Global Research Alliance on Greenhouse Gases in Agriculture, known as GRA, that ACIA uh, for Australia chairs and whose council are also meeting this week and that the workshop we're discussing today was planned to coincide with. Who's involved and what are the objectives of the GRA? The G- GRA is, is a global initiative that was founded just over 10 years ago, initially by New Zealand, uh, the United States and Australia, <clears throat> to get together the global research community in agricultural science as it relates to greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, over the past 10 years, it's grown quite substantially. I think uh, 64 member countries now and 24 member organisations, so, so significant international member organisations. And it has a, a series of, of working groups focusing on particular areas of greenhouse gas emissions research um, and an annual council meeting where those uh, all those member countries and member organisations have the opportunity to come together to share best practice experience and aspirations and needs in uh, research related to greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so there's a rotating chair. The, the chair for the last cycle was Indonesia. So um, a little over a year and a half ago, there was the council meeting in Indonesia hosted by the Indonesian government. And at that council meeting, Australia took over the deputy chair role. And then uh, um, it was intended to be in October 2020, but actually <clears throat> delayed for all the obvious reasons with COVID. Uh, to this month, Australia has now assumed the chair role. The council is meeting virtually this week, um, or has met virtually this week, actually f- finished up last night, again, to discuss council business, to, to look at bringing new members in, uh, to review progress of the working groups, and hear about the change across a very diverse portfolio of countries countries, member countries from developing countries through, uh, you know, Europe and the US, Australia, New Zealand, um, very different circumstances, but a common set of objectives in in better understanding greenhouse gas emissions for agriculture and very importantly, developing the science to measure and the technologies to reduce those emissions. That's fantastic. So it's, it's relatively new and it's in a very powerful position to help drive innovation in agriculture research and action to to tackle greenhouse gas emissions and climate change. Is that right? 
Absolutely. And to, and to avoid the risk of, you know, countries across the world facing the same issues. So as, as you know very well that, you know, agricultural land use, depending where you are, contributes a very significant portion of greenhouse gas emissions. It's one of the two big sectors that, and as, you know, we make these um, rapid energy transitions in terms of energy sources, agriculture and land use is going to increasingly be, uh, you know, a very dominant source of greenhouse gas emissions. So countries across the world are facing the same challenge. There's an opportunity to make sure we don't all reinvent the wheel uh, and miss opportunities to share, um, share technologies, share technologies for measurement, reporting verification technologies for reducing emissions um, so that we can you know, accelerate accelerate change in reducing emissions. Yeah, that's so important. I think your CEO, Andrew Campbell, at the workshop said that uh, climate change and nutrition security or food are the two big existential challenges. And he also spoke about the three Fs, uh, fix the fuel system or the energy system, fix the food system, and the rest is... Is that what he said? <laughs> I, I'm trying to remember what the third F was, but basically the message was uh, there's, there's a fuel system, the food system, and, and all the rest, which doesn't matter. So turning to the workshop, just generally, and to lead us in and about how you felt and what the audience feedback was, how did you feel the workshop went in terms of attendance and its reach? Um, I understand the proceedings are going to go online for free access. The sharing of the really rich information is going to continue. How, how did it go? So, so I think it went very well. It might, might be worth giving a little bit of context to it. As, as you say, the workshop we uh, ran in conjunction with the Crawford Fund ran with, with some support from OCR, uh, and the intention was to have that in conjunction with the council meeting for the Global uh, Alliance. Now, you know, we were intending to have all those um, member representatives from member states and from the international organisations in Australia, and, and our hope was in conjunction with the, the three days of council meetings, which is a lot of you know, sharing science and procedural activities, to provide the opportunity for those international delegates to see some of the activities that happen in Australia, to hear some of the research that's going on here, but also to see some of the activity uh, within the agricultural sector in looking to understand and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So our hope was to have a large number of international delegates come and have a look at some of the best of what's going on in this country. Clearly that couldn't happen uh, with, with border closures and so on. Uh, so we, in, in the end, moved to having this online, well, a mix of an online and, and face-to-face meeting. So here in Canberra, uh, we were able to have some 50 or so people in the room, uh, including um, presenters from agricultural leadership, some some leading farmer practitioners in to really illustrate some of what's possible, some leading researchers, and Jamie Isbister, Australia's ambassador of the environment. So hearing from agricultural leadership, hearing from uh, practitioners and, and hearing the link into the policy space. So we were speaking to a room of 50 or so people, but had, uh, I think, close to 400 people registered to uh, observe online and, and participate in a series of polls. Now, it's very hard to know exactly how those people online um, felt, felt the meeting went, but we had you know very impressive interaction. And in terms of polling response, people from very diverse countries providing their feedback into the, into the meetings. From memory, we had uh, responses from India, Mongolia, Fiji, Pakistan, Philippines, Bangladesh, Vietnam. So, so a real opportunity to, to, to achieve what we intended to, but in a different format, which is to um, you know, contribute to the global debate by demonstrating some of what's happening here and some of the thinking that's going on within Australia. Um, I sat in on the workshop 
uh, virtually, mm-hmm. you could really sense how excited the presenters and the audience uh, were to be speaking live to live people as well. It was it was fabulous to yes have 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 an analog as well as a digital uh, digital meeting. So yeah, absolutely, a meeting of great minds indeed. There were some amazing people presenting and in the room. Um, and now to some highlights. The workshop showcased both farming and research innovations and challenges ahead. Mm-hmm. And it really focused on what is being done by farmers in both animal and cropping systems. What to you was, uh, you know, obviously there were so many, but what to you were some of the key really standout highlights that struck you in terms of success stories underway in Australian agriculture that Australian agriculture can really build on here and now? to reduce greenhouse gas emissions? I guess one of the, the standouts from my perspective was the relationship between the ambition that the Australian agriculture sector has and some of what's been achieved. So uh, Fiona Simpson, the chair of the NFF, presented and, and talked about the NFF's 100 billion by 2030 agenda for Australian agriculture, which I'm sure will be familiar to a lot of listeners, highlighting that that target is at the same time as approaching or, or trending towards uh, net zero net emissions by 2030 and reaching zero net emissions by 2050. So there is a a, a, a clear uh, target there from Australian agriculture, uh, and we heard from Lucinda Corrigan, who is former chair of Farmers for Climate Action, again about some of the very practical uh, intent of that group to to really accelerate towards that that target. So there was significant ambition there, uh, but that was married up with some some really impressive, I thought, stories of practice on the ground. So listen to Corrigan, as well as being former chair of Farmers for Climate Action, is a, a beef producer from southern New South Wales, uh, Renly, uh, run, runs a very significant um, significant business there and has a very impressive story about the extent to which they've been able to measure and understand their greenhouse gas emissions. And I should say, Richard Eckhart from the University of Melbourne pointed out what many of your listeners will know, which is the single the largest single source of agricultural emissions is methane from livestock digestion. So it's a, a big problem. So for a cattle producer like Lucinda Corrigan, a deep concern about climate change, that's a, a significant issue. So Lucinda was able to talk about what in their business they've done, not only to produce improve productivity and profitability and the efficiency of their production system, but to absolutely understand uh, emissions and both land management and management of cattle to seek to reduce those emissions. Similarly, Mark Wooten from uh, Southwest Victoria was able to talk about uh, the work he's done in in his family business, in building a family business, a very significant one in, in uh, sheep, um, wool and, and meat, um, and, and in, a, in a large business that has managed to achieve carbon neutrality from I think it was 2010 or 2011. Um, so again, a very clear understanding of the issues, a very clear commitment to managing his business very effectively for profitability, but also for sustainability, and being able to demonstrate then the results that he'd been able to achieve. So so really, I thought that uh, conjunction between the ambition, but then the demonstration that there are leading farmers who are able to demonstrate the achievability of that ambition, I think, I think was really quite inspiring. And then we heard from researchers, so Richard Eckhart from University of Melbourne talking about research in livestock emissions. And as I say, talking about this very substantial challenge that the methane emission from ruminant animals is, is something they've evolved, has evolved over millions of years, and, and we're now seeking to, to change in a matter of decades. Uh, and, and one of the take-home messages from Richard was, from my point of view, was that uh, he felt that in until recently, 
we had options to reduce livestock methane emissions by around about 20%. So, you know, that's pretty good, but leaves a daunting 80%. He felt that there were technologies and understanding of methane genesis that were coming online now that actually gave us potential for reducing methane emissions by up to 80%. And that, that really is a potential game changer. Now, there's enormous challenges in, in both in those technologies and how they're rolled out, uh, much easier in intensive production systems than the smallholder producers in developing countries and so on. But it did give a sense of possibility and things worth striving for. So, so we're not setting out on a fool's mission to reduce emissions in a way that simply isn't possible. So that was, that was quite inspiring. Yes, I, th- I found um, both well, all of those speakers amazing, but Mark and Richard both put up slides that showed sort of the spectrum of uh, the categorizations of different scientific ways of looking at ruminant breeding selection and then raising and production. And that part of the research challenge is also uh, understanding the complexity across all that spectrum of decision making and where research should really focus now. So for example, seaweed and changing digestion systems within current stock as they are genetically present, but looking at a whole spectrum of different research avenues across the life cycle of even the animals, how they're bred and then how they're raised. And and there were just so many research questions to even understand the picture of where to start. Yeah, so so the the, the ecology of of the cattle rumen is is astonishingly complex, and you know Richard's clear message was we're understanding that better and better, and uh, but it's an extremely complex system, and you need to take a cold hard look at what's going on there and how that how the microflora in the in the rumen interact with feed and interact with the cattle and the cattle interact with the landscape. Uh, and, and, you know, measurement, 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 and as I say, taking a cold, hard look at all those interventions. But I think the message was there are options there. They're, they're challenging. And similarly, uh, Marcus Sevenster from CSRO was talking about emissions from cropping systems and a similar but different complexity. And she was clearly demonstrating that whether you're in Western Australia or, or uh, the cropping system in my part of the world in you know, New South Wales or up into the, up into to Southern Queensland, emissions profiles are very different in different systems and we can't simply find a, a one-size-fits-all change in agronomic practice which is going to reduce nitrous oxide emissions for example from cropping systems it's, it's again about measurement 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 and then understanding the intervention options and, and the consequence they have for emissions so there's a lot of work to do but the but the sense was there is the capacity and the technology and the understanding to make that plausible yes and and the, the leadership and the innovation that's happening in the Australian uh, agriculture sector and research sector is so important for overseas, isn't it? Um, there was a slide, I can't remember who put it up, but it showed where the growth in ruminants is internationally, and it's very much in Africa and much of the developing world. And, and I suppose that's where people exactly like you and your colleagues at ACR have such a key role to play in, in sharing and uh, disseminating the, the knowledge and measurement techniques and so forth. Yes, that, that's that's right. So, um, uh, you know, at ACF, uh, we have a fundamental role to play in, in helping to bring Australian research expertise and, and international research expertise to bear on the challenges facing smallholder farmers, people often in, in poverty. You know, the paradox is of, of the many, still many hundreds of millions of people who don't have enough to eat, 
most of them are smallholder farmers. So addressing the agriculture base is one of the best ways of lifting people out of poverty. At the same time, we need to do that in a way that's that's sustainable. And as as you were saying, biggest growth in livestock numbers in sub-Saharan Africa, and that partly reflects the you know the significant growth in population in sub-Saharan Africa. And that the role of livestock is very different in in those contexts to to Australia. You know, very much about uh, nutritional security, uh, financial security for families. And livelihoods. And livelihoods, absolutely. And a complex dynamic between them. So, you know, a lot of the debate about the livestock sector as it plays out in Europe or the US or Australia plays very differently in, in those communities. So, But the rumens are by and large the same. So so there's a lot of, of core understanding. What we need to be doing is, t- is working on how to translate that science into, into the broader systems and contexts of, of developing countries. And something that uh, sustainable landscapes and ecosystem services require is, you know, I think we all increasingly recognise just how important animals in the landscape and on the landscape, well managed by people in the landscape who understand their catchments and their uh, local environments are, is, is just so important. And uh, yep. yes, all that research around enabling and supporting ruminants to continue to play a key role in our agricultural systems is just so key, isn't it? Yes, and, and there, there are multiple dimensions to that, but the one that's become you know, much clearer in the last few years and, and decade or two is, is this, you know, their contribution to uh, climate change, um, and, and hence this is a, a new new complexity to, to uh, that challenge of, of working with smallholder farmers to, to, to support their uh, livelihoods. And what about some of the longer-term, very promising research or farming innovations on the horizon with regard to cropping. Uh, I know when I spoke with Dr Colin Chartres for the earlier part of this, this uh, podcast, he, he, he really flagged just how, you know, great progress is being made in the animal production system and understanding of uh, ruminants and so forth, as we've just discussed. But he said, uh, indicated that, you know, some of the really big challenges and possibly some of the really big wins are in the cropping sector and in the, with regard to soils and soil carbon. Would you like to talk about uh, some of the issues there or some of the promising things on the horizon with regard to cropping systems? Yes. Yeah, so, so um, uh, you know, I was saying that, you know, the very complex ecology in, in the rumen, there's, there's equally complex ecology in terms of soils, soil structure, soil biology, and, and you know, a clear understanding from researchers, from uh, people, you know, supporting the agriculture sector and from many farmers about you know, the need to be paying very close attention to soil and soil health as an underpinning, not just for uh, addressing um, greenhouse gas emissions issues and, and agriculture's contribution, but just the sustainability and productivity of, of production systems. So Terry McCosker was able to talk about some of those complex dynamics. And again, soils are, are inherently very variable in space and time, you know, respond to the climate, respond to management practices, uh, respond to all kinds of other dynamics. Complexity in understanding what's going on in soils in terms of soil biology and the the physics and chemistry that, you know, determine how much carbon is accumulated in soils, for example, Uh, in understanding what that means for production, uh, you know, water in the soils and so on and so forth. And then, um, you know, potentially for understanding what that means for, for markets and providing various incentives and mechanisms for rewarding people for managing it's a it's a very complex space but again increasing understanding in all those different layers of of the the challenge um from the soil biology through to uh through to the markets and, and incentives for behavior change so terry mccoskey was able to talk really across that 
full span. Um, and I, I think for uh, enormous amount to absorb there, but but again, you know, a sense of very significant challenges. So, but significant progress. I was struck, John Anderson, uh, the chair of the Crawford Fund and Australia's former deputy prime minister. One of the key challenges he outlined in, in some introductory stuff as as a farmer in his own right was that he felt he felt he really hoped and needed quick, affordable, reliable, and user friendly means of measuring soil carbon to enable then you know management response for him and for other farmers. Now that's a really important aspiration, but not a trivial technical challenge. That's right. And people can then, uh, as you say, measure and value, but also feel rewarded about why what they're doing is so important and they can they can capture it and, and really uh, uh, communicate just the amazing change they're making in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions and getting more car- organic carbon back into the soil. I thought Terry McCosker's presentation was was really extraordinary. Uh, there was so much rich detail in that, and he was he was all about biology, 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 wasn't he? About uh, understanding exactly what you've just said—the complexity of the things that need to be um, understood, measured, and built up over time. But something else he also said that I thought was very uplifting was that he said, you know, yes, it's about productivity and reducing greenhouse gas emissions, but he also said that you know when soils are really healthy and the biology is really pumping it makes the soil so much more resilient to extreme events. And I think drought and now these hideous floods we've just been having, that idea that for so many linked up reasons, focusing on soils is just so key, isn't it? Yeah, that was a very clear message, as you say, from Terry McCosker and a lot of of um, insights into, into the dynamics behind it. But but equally from Mark Wooden, he, he said, you know, measuring soil carbon was something he thought was fundamentally important. And his key motivation for doing that was not about reducing emissions, although he felt there was a real value in that, or sequestering carbon. It was about improving the resilience and productivity of his, his production system. And he felt all the other benefits were icing on the cake. There was enough enough from his point of view. Okay. Dan, what do, you, what do you consider to be some of the really key research issues that the workshop perhaps helped to identify as, as being ones that need much, much more further research, um, either by researchers in, in in at universities and elsewhere, but also in terms of on-farm trial work and innovation. And, and clearly measurement's a key one. Were there areas of research that perhaps surprised you as standout needs? I, I think, and this this might sound a bit sort of um, a bit orthogonal to what, you, to what you're asking, if that's that's not a terrible word to use, what really stood out for me was, was this increasing understanding of the system from a research scientist's point of view. But from the other end, this ambition from from industry, this real, um, at least for some, you know, really leading producers, a real appetite for the knowledge and a real capacity to then apply that, uh, explore it, understand it, and and feed back into the research system. So I think what came through for me very clearly, and I think we do very well in Australia, is linking fundamental science through to uh, application in farming systems, through to the policy landscape, and as Jamie Isbis to the Ambassador Vrum was saying we have a, a, a role to play through initiatives like the GRA and taking that then, then to the world. So, so it's about connecting all the pieces of the jigsaw uh, and doing that again and again and again and making sure there's a, a tight, close relationship between research and practice. So in, in the sort of um, jargon in, in our world, that's what we call transdisciplinary science, where we're uh, really taking all the people involved in knowledge discovery, but also 
creating the innovations and working out how to create value from those innovations, both in terms of agricultural productivity and resilience and, and in the context of, of the focus of this workshop, reducing greenhouse gas emissions as a result. So it's really about connecting everything up. And as, as we were saying on the day, this uh, workshop is, is uh, linked to the UN Food System Summit, and that's really a core theme for this whole global agenda this year is, is how you build dialogue across all the stakeholders in food systems uh, to understand that every change everywhere has a consequence anywhere else, somewhere else. And, and uh, you know, you need, need a really collective view of that to be nudging the food system in the right direction so that we have, as Andrew Campbell was saying, we address the food and nutritional security that significant challenges still for the globe at the same time as addressing, you know, the impact of the food system on, on global climate. So it's really about tying it all together rather than particular silver bullets, if that makes sense. And, and what you're doing and what ACO and the Crawford Fund are doing are absolutely providing the highly informed and inspirational glue to, to do that. So so it's just so exciting to see what you are all doing. And the workshop, it really was very inspiring, exactly as you say, in terms of ambition. I jotted down one of the polls at the end, just you know, reiterates what you've been saying, uh, that in terms of farmers' views about what were the most significant challenges uh, to farmers embracing solutions, it was a really positive message that came through in this poll. 21% said the challenge was how to measure. 35% said it was about access to knowledge and technology. 18% said it was about financial capital to invest in innovations. And 18% said it was about, you know, galvanising values and commitment but that paints a really positive picture of the will and desire for change doesn't it absolutely and and, and the truth is uh, it's about all those things and that's i'm sure all the respondents that survey would have known that it was you know which do you think is the most the most constraining or the most significant and the fact there's that um, spread across those different areas really i think underlines that understanding so dr walker thank you so much for speaking with me today are there any final comments or further thoughts you'd like to or call outs uh, that you might like to make uh if anyone's interested there is a, a, a website for the gra which is up at the moment and actually on that website there are a series of videos including we were talking about this in the corrigan and mark wooden's farms there's some videos showing work that's been going on in those on that site just short four or five minute videos and, and other um, i mean they're two I think standout exemplars, but there are many others. So we have some other farmers who've been doing, I think, quite astonishing things in in rice and so on. So I really encourage people to go and have a look at that. Dr. Walker, are the proceedings from the workshop that was held this week going to be available free online? And where can people go and watch or access each of the presentations? So the Crawford Fund will have a lot of material online. So I really suggest you go to the Crawford Fund website. And as I say, this is this actually Australia's first independent summit dialogue for the UN Food System Summit. So we will be providing a report into the UN Food System Summit uh, website just on highlights from those very strict reporting requirements. Uh, but that's that'll be a means of, of getting a summary as well and, and potentially having a look at the very diverse other other dialogues that are happening within the context of the UN Food System Summit. And thanks so much for speaking with me and um, all power to you for, for what you and your colleagues are doing. Uh, it's a source of inspiration and practical action. Thank you so much. Thank you, Anthea. That's To learn more about the Global Research Alliance on Agricultural Greenhouse Emissions, go to globalresearchalliance.org and to listen to to the presentations and proceedings from the workshop discussed in this episode, go to the Crawford Fund's website at crawfordfund.org. Thanks for listening. I hope this conversation offered some nourishing food for thought. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au 
backslash nourishing or you can subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay in touch via Instagram at Nourishing Matters or Foodswell Australia. As this is a new podcast, we'd really value your support. So please give us a rating or review in your favourite podcast app so other people can find us too. Nourishing Matters to Chew On is proud to be on the Climactic Network of Podcasts and part of a collective of podcasters dedicated to inspiring positive action around climate change. Check out the other great podcasts on the Climactic Network at www.climactic.fm.